welcome to the Social Entrepreneurship Diaries. This podcast is produced by SE Lab, the MS International Research Network and Impact Hub Amsterdam. I am Andrea Barbosa, your host. I attended the European Social Business Forum some weeks ago, as it took place here in the Netherlands this year. One of the speakers was Jean Bernou, regional manager of multinational potato maker McCain. Within McCain, he piloted the launching of a social business which promotes work integration and the reduction of crop waste through the commercialization of bottled soup. Jean Bernou had one main piece of advice for all social entrepreneurs attending that forum. First of all, make sure you figure out where the money will be coming from. If you don't figure that out, sooner or later you will fail. It's like that joke about how when two bankers get together, they always talk about art, while when two artists get together, they always end up talking about money. Since I started researching the social entrepreneurship sphere, I have come across all kinds of great projects and passionate souls. And they are all struggling with the same issue. How do I pay for my project's wings? There are enormous amounts of wealth out there. An ocean of money was the expression used by Professor Mohamed Yunus at the forum. But how can it be captured into the production of social good? In this episode, we will look at this question from three perspectives. First, we will hear from a social entrepreneur about her dealings with the financial aspect of her venture, which has now been running for 14 years. Second, we will learn about social impact bonds and other innovations in the world of finance, which attempt to channel wealth into the muggy realms of social work. And third, we will travel to the frontier of art, finance and politics and see how finance can be hacked, desecrated and democratized. Young in Prison is the name of a Dutch social venture operating internationally. Its aim is to help imprisoned youths to discover their potential and stop the cycle of misdeeds and prison that often goes on into adulthood. Noah Ledeisen, the founder of Young in Prison, told me how it all started. I was still in my studies, doing my internship in South Africa and working with street kids or actually doing a project around street kids and the street kids. Uh, I had an uh, uh, assignment that I had to follow the street kids. Where do they go? Like, because a lot of disappeared. And then I found out that they all ended up in prison. And that was the moment uh, I also saw the prison for the first time. And that touched me so much. It's like, it feels a bit like hell. It's exactly what you would say is the hell and also uh, like everybody in South Africa but it's worldwide quite a, a thing that they say prison is the university of crime and 90% of the kids in prison they return back to prison so that whole idea around it is like like giving up on on youth in such a way like a whole society gives up on a certain type of youth and I thought that I want to uh, spend my time on finding ways on actually looking at their potential 
So I changed my internship and then I did it in uh, prison. And then the next year, I actually, my kind of final year, my thesis I did around setting up Young in Prison. A key concept in the work of Young in Prison is creativity. Through art workshops, theater for instance, this potential that had remained hidden for lack of opportunities can be revealed. The youth, they have a very bad experience with uh, education. They, a lot of, never been in a school and otherwise they think they're not smart or they can't sit still or whatever. And uh, a creative way of uh, working fits really well. And we developed a methodology that actually has so many learning aspects within creativity that is very useful for society. So it's collaboration, uh, self-reflection, um, all kind of social skills, uh, soft skills in all kind of way, also emotional skills that at the end will help them focus also on uh, living in society and working, working skills. Noah told me that when she returned from her internship in South Africa with the project of creating Young in Prison, she started by writing letters to her parents' friends. So her first step was to gather interest around the cause from people with connections and means. A board was formed, and more broadly, a whole network around the project. So, diverging from Jean Bernou's advice, she started by focusing not on the money, but on the network. Via the network then came the first bit of money. An auction of drawings made by the youngsters in prison was organized. But soon enough, Noah was faced with the sustainability question. Most funders, but even people who donate, they don't want it to pay the bill of your office or to pay the bill of me working, you know. And so the first five years, actually, I did it totally voluntarily. But it's not possible to really be a professional organization in a long term. So we made that decision to no, we do it professionally. But that means you need to also finance yourself. And nobody wants to pay that. People think like it gets stuck in in Holland, which is true, but it also is a way to do it. It's the only way. So if you have your own money and you can decide yourself how to spend it, then you know exactly how where to put it. Having a source of money with no strings attached became important for Young in Prisons model. The organization relies on various kinds of funding, from foundation grants to the Dutch government, to local funding from the countries where it operates. But around 10% of Young in Prisons budget comes from independently organized art auctions, and those funds are crucial. Um, we ask artists and actually specifically um, photographers to donate their artwork and then we auction it and that is like a very important uh, way of financing ourselves next to and now nowadays it's about uh, we also have a lot of funding but uh, funders are really specific in how to spend your money and there's always gaps so if I look at the, we're still existing, being like a small organization, but a lot of organizations in my surrounding, they, f they fell, especially during difficult times with funding. They fell because they didn't have this money that could gap all those uh, loose funders, you know? So, and because we had this auction, 
and you can spend it um, however you want. You know, you can fill the gaps. And that's actually one really important thing why we still exist. In this spirit, Young in Prison is developing a new venture called Yip Made. The organization wanted to address the problem of jobs being scarce nowadays for young people, let alone for youngsters with a criminal record. So they started a pilot in Malawi, where they offer recently released youths a one-year full-time workshop in entrepreneurship, during which they also learn a craft and manufacture an artwork under the guidance of an artist. After completing the program, youngsters have access to a microloan in order to launch a business. In the Malawi pilot, they have learned welding skills and built a metal lamp designed by Dutch artist Joop van Lieshout. The lamp, called Freedom Lamp, was produced in small numbers and is to be sold in Holland as a very exclusive piece of design. Uh, Joop van Lieshout uh, is a famous artist in Holland. He did a lot already about freedom and imprisonment uh, in the past. And uh, he made this lamp, the freedom lamp. And the idea around is that the lamp is the potential of the youth. And the bars around the lamp actually tried to hold the potential, but it's not possible because the light anyway kind of goes through. So the concept of the lamp is really strong and that has a very uh, deeper kind of understanding for the people who buy it, but also for the youth who are making it. And I also never actually expected the impact it has on the youth that the art is so meaningful. So it really, they went wild on this idea. So they loved it. So which is really, really nice. So it is a yeah, deeper understanding of it. And it tells, I mean, that's the other part, of course, we need to do as Young in Prison is telling our story in the right way. So um, that is the, the extra part that brings it. If we sell it all over the world and we got a lot of media attention and telling this story, we have another impact as well. So, yes, wealthy individuals in Holland will be buying a lamp and a story, and the venture is well on its way to success. But Noah told me of many other funding ideas that flopped during Young in Prison's 14-year history. For sure, the organization has always been very proactive and creative in its efforts to sustain itself. Noah Lodeisen is now talking to angel investors, but she is unsure about whether Young in Prison's model may include offering them some kind of financial return along with a social one. Let's stay with investment for a while. Expressions like impact investment or blended finance are becoming more and more familiar. Or at least I keep stumbling on them and I did my homework of trying to understand what they are. Impact investment is about giving a conscience to the hungry blind monster of profit. It is about channeling money into activities that have a social or environmental goal or at least concern while expecting some financial return. Blended finance is the complementary idea of combining private, public and non-profit resources so that investment can flow into much-needed social and environmental projects with different actors sharing the risks. 
António Miguel is Portuguese and he is the Managing Director of the Social Investment Lab in Lisbon. Impact investment and blended finance are things he is passionate about. For him, those notions are slowly going mainstream. A major shift is taking place in the world of finance. We will gradually shift from profit and impact being mutually exclusive to profit and impact being intrinsically related. I know this sounds very theoretical, but actually millennials, they demand from companies and from products that they deliver social and environmental goods. So there is a consumer-driven decision in basically having better products than cheaper products that harm the environment or that have a negative social impact. At the same time, the workforce is also changing. These millennials, these people leaving the university right now, they want to work for companies that not only maximize shareholders' profit, but also have a positive impact in the communities where they operate. So this is basically the people that will going to work in their companies who are going to be productive. If you join these two forces, and if you think that just like a, a number of years ago, no one could understand risk as a variable for financing decisions, suddenly the equation became, I need to manage my risk to expect a higher or a lower return. So what we think now is that impact is a third variable that influences financial decisions. So when you're asking me how can finance contribute to social goods, it's basically by placing money where that money is used not only as a force of maximizing profit, but as a force of maximizing profit simultaneously with maximizing social impact. Along with the coming of age of the millennials and their new standards, Antonio Miguel points out that there is now enough data showing that it pays off, in the classic way, to invest long-term and with a social and environmental orientation. Science is discrediting the idea of making money fast. And the fall of Lehman Brothers and so many others has certainly changed the way people look at mainstream finance. This is the ground on which things like the Social Investment Lab can grow. The lab is working on many things, one of them being the first Portuguese social impact bond. Here's the story. So we understood and we analyzed that in Lisbon, in, in most primary schools, public primary schools, one out of five kids were failing, were being retained in a school year during primary school. So what this means is that they have four years in primary school and 20% of them were actually spending five years or more in primary school. And so this is a huge social problem because kids are age seven, eight. They're not pursuing the same academic path like their colleagues. They lose their friends because they are not in the same group anymore. And it's proven that failing one year actually penalizes the future of the young person. And it also has an economic cost because each student costs on average 3,000 euros to the Ministry of Education. And we have 20% of them costing 3,000 euros more than they should. We so said, we need to do something about this. And we identified a social organization called Code for All, 
that deploys computer programming classes for primary school kids. And we analyzed and investigated whether there was a positive effect in terms of learning computer programming and school performance. We had strong indications that there was a positive effect. So what we said was, look, we are going to get investors to finance computer programming schools in the primary schools in Lisbon, delivered by Code for All. And if we improve the school performance rate by 10% in comparison with the control group, we know that the municipality of Lisbon is going to save money because less kids will fail. So you will actually pay back investors if we achieve that success. The basic idea behind social impact bonds is that the state will use part of its savings from avoided costs to give private investors some return on their investment, should certain social outcomes be met. Just a quick note to stress how important impact measurement is in this whole mechanism. Fortunately for you, episode 3 of this podcast dives into that matter. Anyway... In the case of the bond described by Antoni Miguel, the only investor is a foundation, the Calusco Benken Foundation, and the deal with the Portuguese government is that from the 150,000 euros invested, the foundation will get 110,000 back if in two years the failure rate of school kids has indeed decreased by 10%. So no profit here, but actually a planned loss. But Antonio Miguel points out that for a foundation, getting part of its money back and being able to give it a second life is quite revolutionary. The foundation's engagement in the first Portuguese social impact bond will hopefully make way for other kinds of investors. What we're working on now, and we have around seven other projects in the pipeline for social impact bonds, is to attract other foundations individuals, high net worth individuals, corporate social responsibility budgets from companies. In the first run, we think these are the segments of investors that will be more likely to put their money in social impact bonds because their returns are close to zero or very small. But when I say returns, I don't mean reimbursement. So they will always have their money back if they achieve the social impact that is expected. We will only be reaching out to banks and other institutional investors or venture capitalists or business angels once we have outcome payers, that usually is the public sector, that is willing to pay a, a small return on those projects. Portugal has now a fund, an outcome fund, built with 15.15 million euros from European Union structural funds that will open in the summer of 2016. And those 15 million will basically be the market for social impact bonds in the near future until 2020. Just to give you a little context, the very first social impact bond was created in the United Kingdom in 2010 with the mission of preventing recidivism and the concept has spread to the States, Canada and other countries. 
the French government is concocting its first bond right now. And remember Crésus, the organization working in the prevention of over-indebtedness from last episode? They have a proposition ready to hand in when the French government issues its call for projects. Now, prepare to meet another experiment in finance that is also about getting it to work for the greater good, but is radically different. It is an investment cooperative born in Finland in 2012 and that goes by the name of Robinhood. The name is quite telling of the provocative, artistic nature of the project and of its philosophy. Steal from the rich and give to the poor. How does Robinhood Co-op do this? Well, they developed an algorithm that studies and copies the most performing traders in the New York Stock Exchange. The algorithm is aptly named the Parasite. The Parasite invests the money of Robinhood's 800 members in whatever those traders are cherishing. About half of the benefits are then invested in social projects selected by a committee of members. Last year, 15,000 euros were allocated to such projects. The rest goes to the members themselves, which are very modest investors, the organization's tagline being minor asset management. Robinhood says that the parasites' returns are as good as the best hedge funds. You may think that this project rests on shaky moral ground and is impossible to replicate on a large scale. And you're right. But that would be missing the point. The Robin Hood Co-op is an artistic, political and financial experiment whose first aim is to research the world of finance. Here's the co-op's managing director, Tere Vaden. The parasiting idea comes from the uh, realization that uh, one thing that happens in the economy right now is that uh, some people rich people basically have the possibility to have income from non-wage labor. And, and the thing is that uh, then people with small capital, that's, that's why it's called minor asset management, people with minor money, minor assets, they only have the possibility to gain income from wage labor. So in that sense, Robin Hood Co-op is a way of trying to give this possibility for non-wage income to minor capital, to democratize the possibility for uh, income from financial assets and financial technologies. Also, in terms of, of value creation, what we see happening in, in, in the world is that uh, central banks print money in, in the trillions right now. And uh, the debt relationship that people have to banks and, and private debt and public debt and so on, that is uh, the whole derivative market that that creates. It is several tens of times bigger than the combined GDP of all countries put together. So if you, if you talk about money and economy, that's where it's happening. It's not happening on the level of Greece or Europe or Euro or dollar even. They are small, they are minuscule things compared to this derivative market. That's where the action is, that's where profit and, and capital are created these days. So tapping into that knowledge, tapping into that kind of competence, parasiting it, and, and learning from that, this is uh, the core of the learning process. 
Understanding the implications of our dwelling in debt and the mechanisms used to exploit it, here's one of Robin Hood's learning tracks. In trying to democratize finance by creating a hedge fund for the common man, they have discovered that finance is indeed a very exclusive club for members only. Just as a first sort of uh, approximation of, the, of one of the big big learnings is that the banks have really created a nice niche from themselves. This area is so regulated, so uh, closely guarded in so many levels, both ideologically, legally, and in, in terms of, of sort of like practical law enforcement and so on, that it's so far from free market. It's, so, it's sort of like, like absolutely far from anything that could be called a free market. So, so in that sense, just this kind of realizations that you get when you start doing it in, in practice. And of course, you can read that, from the <laughs> read that from the newspaper or read that from the literature that this is a very monopolistic space. But when you experience it firsthand, it, it's a very different type of experience. The Robin Hood project really spoke to me also because of its moral ambiguities. The parasite is not open source. For it to work, it must remain as opaque as the financial world it critiques. And the placements it makes, they could be anything. They could be weapons. I see the parasite as a sort of undercover agent doing a dirty job, but smuggling information and empowering the rebels. This comes up always when talking about Robin Hood that it's not ethical investment. So the parasite could be buying Exxon or Monsanto or whatever. So it's not ethical investment in that sense. So for me, the crucial real realization about that was that there are no financial virgins. Or maybe they are, but they are very few. It is possible, and I have some friends who live completely without money in a, in a self-subsistence economy. It's very hard to do, but it is possible. You can do it. And I have, I have the utmost admiration for those people, and, and it's, a, it's a good project. But if you use any fiat money, if you use euros, if you use dollars or, or something like that, then you are already implicated in the financial economy. If you go to a chain store of any kind, the money doesn't stay there in the cash machine with the nice person on, on the counter. It's, it is already implicated in the financial market. It's already sold in futures and, and so on of the chain store. And if you have money in the bank, if, if you have debt, a mortgage for your house, that money is already in the financial market. If you are in, in a pension fund, that is in the financial market. The only difference is that you don't get to decide how that money is used. Or, or the other slogan that we use is that there are no banks, there are just other people's hedge funds. So at least with the Robin Hood model you get to choose uh, how the profit is uh, allocated. But the deeper answer is the whole attitude with, with Robin Hood, which started as an art project and as an experimental project, and it's, it is still an art project, an experimental project, is this kind of ethics of burning at the stake. We are not in a position where we can step outside the world and then come back into the world uh, with our uh, sort of clean, precise ethical rules and, and then sort of uh, judge the world and, and keep our nose clean. We are already in the world, we are burning at the stake and at that position we have to make some moves, we have to make decisions, we have to create stuff. And that is the attitude and that is the ethical position. We take action, we see what happens 
and then also change our actions and, and modify it on the basis of that without having this moral certitude or without having this kind of ethical ground or foundation from which to make these decisions. Perhaps we are indeed surrounded by an ocean of money and all it takes is the right infrastructure, a sophisticated dike system like the one they built here in the Netherlands, to make it flow to the dry spots. But although money is always a struggle in social projects, I keep reminding myself that it is just an enabler and that true value rests elsewhere. For all his ease with novel financial concepts, Antonio Miguel is quick to evoke the non-financial dimensions of the work he does. Actually, most of the things that we do and most of the things that are advantages of a model like a social impact bond is something that we call capacity building. Because we have some money available to work with these organizations and because they are working to achieve outcomes, we can do capacity building with them. We can improve the robustness and the competences of their teams. We can work on their management processes and help them be more efficiently, reduce costs, increase revenues, etc. So this is the first intangible bit, capacity building. The second intangible bit that is not monetized is information. You go and you talk to any sector and they have a lot of information about everything. They have information about how many users, what's the traction, and the private sector uses that information for their own goods. There's not a lot of information in the social sector. We don't have a lot of data to understand social issues. And what these social investment projects allow is for you to have data to better understand the issues. So the second intangible thing is data. It's very, very, very important. And then the third is this intangible asset, which is motivation, goodwill, volunteering. People working in this sector often work with an extra element of motivation. So when you attract talented people that would otherwise go to banks and investment banking and traditional private sector, but want to apply all of what they know in the social sector, and beyond the technical skills, they have the passion and the motivation, it's a perfect mix to achieve more impact. So these three non-financial elements are very important. Capacity building, data, and the passion from people working on this sector. For Noah Lodeisen, the network of local partners that allows Young in Prison's methodology to be implemented and to evolve is invaluable. It is truly something that money can't buy, but that it has certainly enabled. As it has enabled the voices of the young in prison to be heard, their input drives the organization forward and is now reaching far beyond it. The youths are counseling the Dutch justice system and other stakeholders on better designing correctional programs. Should you 
want to continue exploring the subject of financial means for social ends, please visit our website sediaries.org where you can find all the references concerning this episode and more. Many thanks to Noah Lodizen, Antonio Miguel and Tere Vaden. Credit for the music we use on our podcast goes to Poddington Bear, Alex Fitch and Adam Seltzer. Thank you for listening.